0: Okay, as we begin today with the teaching, I want to start by asking you a question. I want to invite you to think for a minute as you think back on your own life and your childhood and your teenage years and maybe your 20-something, you know, that decade of your life, who are the individuals that had the biggest impact on your life? As you think about your own life and who you've become and maybe as it relates to what you do, who are the individuals that had the most influence in your life? Hold on to that for a little bit. For me, there are several people that I could point to that had a big impact on me, but as it relates to what I do for a living, no doubt my first pastor comes to mind. He pulled me off to the side when I was a teenager and he said, John, I I see ministry potential in you. I think that this ministry thing may be what God has hardwired you to do, might be what he has gifted you to do and what he's going to call you to do with your life. And at the time, I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought... I don't know what I want to do for a living, but I don't know if it's church stuff, what you do. I mean, I knew I loved God, I loved church, I loved studying scripture on my own, but I just had no idea what I wanted to do for a living. And so he said, if you'll allow me, I'd like to kind of lean into that a little bit. And I said, great. And so we would have some intentional conversations. He looked for opportunities to kind of bring me along in that, took me to a pastor's conference with him at one point. And then when I was a senior in high school, he invited me to give the the teaching at church one weekend. And I thought, you know, yeah, let's do it. Let's see if this maybe is what God wants to do. Let me say yes to this opportunity and see if it, like, you know, hits a, a nerve that I feel like, yeah, maybe this is what I was made to do. And so I said yes. And in the days and weeks leading up to it, I cannot tell you how scared I got. Like, I mean, I was as nervous as you could possibly get. You might have thought they asked me to fly the space shuttle. Like, lives are on the line here. I was so scared. The other thing that you should know about our church is that our services at this church I grew up in were long. Anybody else grow up going to a church with really long services? Yeah. Some of you are like, yeah, that's Heartland, because they last like an hour. Um, (laughs) But no, our services were really long. I mean, they were like two and a half hour long services, and the pastor would speak for at least an hour. Now, again, you think I'm long-winded. An hour-long sermon, that's like That's really long. And uh, so I'm prepared. I'm ready to go. I get up to to teach and uh, I I go through my sermon, kind of talk about the passage God's kind of laid on my heart. I sit down. I'm relieved. I'm a mess. I hated it the whole time. I look around and I realize I taught for about seven minutes, (laughs) which is about 53 minutes shorter than anybody expected me to go. And so then I looked at the pastor, and I could see the look on his face, like, what am I supposed to do for the next 53 minutes, John? You've kind of thrown me under the bus here. So he came up, and he tried to take what I had said and stretch it and grow it, and he struggled for about 25 minutes till he gave up, and we just all went home. <laughs> I thought, this is clearly not what God wants me to do for a living, and so I went to a secular state school, and I thought, I'm going to get a degree in something else, and I'll go do my own thing. Now, there's, uh, that's my story. That's kind of the first element of what got me to where I am. But who was it for you? As you think about even what it is that you do, how do you find yourself where you are today? Whose who's influence in your life caused you to, to end up where you are today? If you look back at the beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Judges, there is a crazy story And one of the subtle elements of this story is influence that one individual has in the life of another. I want us to look at it together. And so if you brought a Bible, go ahead and look at Judges chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We'll put it up on the side screens like we do every week. But the year is roughly 1250 B.C. We're talking 3,200 years ago. The nation of Israel has been led out of slavery by Moses. They have crossed the Jordan River into the promised land and led by Joshua. They have, they have driven out many of the inhabitants who had filled the promised land, but they've stopped short of following God's instructions in driving out all of the people. You need to know that the Canaanites who lived in this land were morally deplorable people. The cornerstone of their culture was child sacrifice, literally human sacrifice. God wanted the Israelites to have absolutely nothing to do with the Canaanites and their culture. The last thing he wanted was for them to end up living as neighbors surrounded by the Canaanites, and yet because of their disobedience and their failure to drive them out from the land completely, that's exactly what happened. Now this this lack of following through with God's instructions would prove to have painful ramifications for the Israelites because they would end up fighting with and being oppressed by their neighbors for generations to come. At this point in their history, the nation of Israel didn't have a king to lead them. The original plan had been that they would live in this land all by themselves, enjoying the peace that came from that. They would follow God as their king directly, and that they wouldn't need a person to lead them. But that plan was no longer possible, and so they needed somebody, at least from time to time, to step up and help them militarily, to lead them especially militarily. And so we're told in Judges 3, verse 16, that the Lord would raise up what they called judges who saved them out of the hands of their enemies because they didn't clear out the land And because they were surrounded by their enemies, and because they needed somebody to lead them, God would raise up an individual who they referred to as a judge to lead them from time to time. But make note of this phrase, of the hands. We'll see that throughout this story today. A couple of verses later, in verse 18, we read that whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands, there it is again, He would would, uh, save them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. The beginning of the book of Judges here sets up a cycle. The nation of Israel would find themselves being oppressed by their neighbors. They would cry out to God for help. God would raise up a judge who he had anointed to lead the people for this generation. They would overthrow their foreign oppressors. They would live in peace for a while, but eventually they would go back to kind of turning their back on God and following the ways of their Canaanite neighbors. They would become oppressed again, and the cycle would start all over. Here in Judges chapter 3, we read about Israel's first two judges, Othniel and Ehud, a couple great names for those of you who will be dedicating kids in the future. (laughs) And in chapter 4, the cycle starts all over again. This is where our story really picks up. After Ehud died, the people of Israel sinned against the Lord again. So the Lord let them be conquered by Jabin, a Canaanite king who ruled in the city of Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, and he ruled the people of Israel with cruelty and violence for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Ancient history, especially in Europe and the Near East, can be broken into three time periods— There was the Stone Age, followed by the Bronze Age, followed by the Iron Age. And each successive age brought with it an advancement in technology as it related to both civilian life and military weaponry. This was the very beginning of the Iron Age, and we're told that Sisera's army has 900 iron chariots. That's an important part of the story because at this point in their history, the Israelites do not yet have iron technology. They're still living with Bronze Age technology. Remember, they've just come up out of Egypt where they were slaves. They were essentially farmers and brickmakers. They have pitchforks and shovels, maybe axes and spears. But this would be like a bunch of farmers hoping to overthrow this oppressive ruler with a massive trained army and 900 iron chariots, the latest and greatest military technology. They're simply no match for Sisera and the Canaanites. Not only is he ruling over the Canaanites, but we're told that he ruled with cruelty and violence. If you read on ahead to the end of chapter 5, you get just a glimpse of how disturbing and cruel his oppression was. And so the nation of Israel cries out to God for help. They recognize their need for a Savior. They recognize their need for a Deliverer, for someone to speak on behalf of God, for someone to lead the people. And in the very next verse, we meet the Deliverer who God chooses. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak. Huh. A woman? Really? No. Obviously, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But for some of you, you might have been surprised that when God wanted to raise up a leader, he chose a woman. Why are we surprised at that? Maybe some of you, like me, grew up thinking that God would only give the gift of leadership to men. Maybe some of you grew up, like I grew up, thinking that God would not place a woman in a position of authority over men. And yet here is Deborah And that's exactly what God has chosen to do with her. Deborah is proof that is simply not the case. Now we're told a few important things about Deborah in this passage. First of all, we're told that she was leading Israel. Again, at this point in their history, God himself would raise up the person he wanted to lead the nation of Israel from time to time, and he has chosen Deborah to lead Israel. Not only that, but we're told that Deborah was was also a prophet. That's important because not All of the judges who God appointed to lead Israel were prophets. In fact, usually uh, almost none of them were prophets. Usually they were just plain leaders. So we're told that Deborah was leading Israel, we're told that she was a prophet, and then we're also told that she was actually a judge, that she held court in the hill country, and that Israelites would bring their their disputes to her for her to decide, which means that not only was she leading, not only was she prophesying, which we'll see later in the story, but she was also functioning as a legal judge. Now again, you might think, isn't that normal? Didn't all of the judges that God raised up actually judge And the answer is no. In fact, not since Moses did the Israelites have a leader like Deborah. Not since Moses did they have a leader who not only led the people, but was also a prophet and also served as a legal judge. She was a God-anointed leader at the highest level. Deborah, in fact, just as a side note, this is just... A side note, but Deborah is part of the many reasons here at Heartland that we affirm women in leadership at the highest levels, even all the way up on our elder team. But the nation of Israel is being brutally oppressed by King Jabin and his right-hand man, Sisera. Sisera is leading this trained army with 900 iron chariots. If Israel could defeat Sisera, though, they would be able to overthrow Jabin and be free. And so the people call out to God, and God raises up Deborah. Now we read in the next verse that Deborah sent for Barak. And she said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. You, Barak, you're supposed to lead the way. Take these men and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and I will give him into your hands. There's that phrase again. Deborah calls Barak and she says, Barak, this is what you have been made for. This is what God has appointed you to do. This is the role that God is asking you to play. She says, Barak, you need to go take 10,000 men and lead the way to Mount Tabor. At this point in the story, we would expect to see Barak say, all right, game on. He grabs his spear and his axe and he courageously leads 10,000 people to Mount Tabor. But that's not what Barak does. Barak said to her, well, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. This plan sounds crazy to Barak. He's thinking, Deborah, you're out of your mind. Need I remind you that he has a trained army, that he has 900 iron chariots? Need I remind you that we're a bunch of farmers and brickmakers, like we've got picks and shovels and spears, you know? You're telling me that God is calling me to lead 10,000 people against Sisera? He says, no way. Barak did not see anything in himself that would give him the confidence to follow her instructions. He said, I do not see what you're talking about. But Deborah, I see something in you. And so if you'll come with me, I'll go do it. But if you don't go, I'm not going either. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way that you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera, but he'll do it. He'll deliver him into the hands of a woman says, Barak, you don't see what I see, You're not, you don't see what God's calling you to do, and so you want me to go with you, a woman to go with you? Okay, that's fine, but you just need to understand that the honor from Sisera going down is going to be handed not to you in this case, it'll be in the hands of a woman. Barak gathers the men, Deborah goes with him, and they get ready for battle. Now as readers, especially those of us who enjoy reading these Old Testament battles, we are ready for this epic war to begin. Right, The bad guys are finally going to get the punishment that's coming to them. We're ready for the blood, the gore, the guts, the spears, the swords, the iron chariots, the horses, the beheadings, all that stuff. Give us all the details. The next verse, though, takes a really weird twist. Verse 11 says, Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree. What? What? Who the heck is Heber the Kenite, and why should we care where he's pitching his tent? Well, I'm serious. We don't actually know. We're not told. There's no context clues. So we'll do whatever you're supposed to do theologically. Whenever you come to a verse in the Bible that seems out of place, we'll skip it. (laughs) Seriously. We're just going to skip it. Um, We're waiting for this battle. We're waiting for this battle, okay? Okay. So you got the 10,000 Israelite farmers squaring off against Sisera and the 900 chariots, all trained soldiers. And, and we finally get a glimpse of what happens, but we're still not really given all the details. Verse, the next verse, verses 15 and 16, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, and army by the sword. Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot, and all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Come on right? That's it. That's all we get. For those of us who enjoy reading these battle scenes, like we're disappointed. We're bummed. If this was a movie, I'd be asking for my money back. Like that's the worst battle ever. You know, my wife would be happy because she'd be like, well, we, this was the best battle ever. We didn't have to see anybody get killed, but I'm bummed. I want the details. Like I want to know how did God do it? How did God deliver Sisera and these 900 chariots into the hands of the Israelites? How did he do this? Well, in the next chapter, we're actually given a little bit better of an idea. Chapter 5 of the book of Judges parallels Judges chapter 4, but it's a song. It's done in a poetic sense. It's referred to as the Song of Deborah. Judges chapter 5 is actually a duet between Deborah and Barack. It's sort of like this odd Kenny Rogers moment. Many scholars, for what it's worth, actually believe that Judges chapter 5 is the oldest text in the Hebrew Bible. They believe that it was written down by Deborah immediately after it happened, which would make it the oldest recorded part of the Bible. So Judges 4 is the narrative. Judges 5 is like the recap done to a poetic song. In chapter 5, we read a little bit more about what went down. We read, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. From the heavens... The stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the age old river, that river Kishon. Now we start to get the picture. You can imagine what happened here. The stars fought for them, the heavens fought for them. This wasn't done at night, but you can see what would have happened. The Canaanites, with their 900 iron chariots, are lined up against the Kishon River. Across the valley, on the other side of the valley, you have the Israelites all lined up, all 10,000 of them waiting for the battle to begin, and it starts to rain. And God makes it rain. And it starts raining harder and harder and harder. And the more that it rains, the more the, the banks of the river rise, and eventually it overflows its banks, and it floods the valley in front of them. Those 900 iron chariots are now not only neutralized, they've become a liability. They're so heavy that in mud, they're going to be completely stuck. They're going to be anchors that are completely immobile. But you know who does really good in the mud? A bunch of farmers with shovels and axes. And the Israelites rout the entire Canaanite army. Not a single person survived, except Sisera, I guess. We read that he fled on foot. He got away. So going back to chapter 4 for more of the narrative, Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael. Who's that? The wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was a friendly relations between Jabin king of Hazor and the clan of Heber the Kenite. There we go. That's why we were introduced to Heber earlier. So he's moved up from down south, pitched his tent, and as Sisera's on the run, he finds them. He meets them. He goes into their tent, and he meets Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. He realizes, like, hey, we've got a treaty from way back. Will you protect me? And she says, sure. So Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. And so he entered her tent and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. J.L. says, come on in. Sisera is exhausted. He's been in battle all day. He's been fleeing for his life. It's been raining. He's tired. He's running through mud. He's exhausted. He sees this tent under this great tree, and he goes in, and he realizes that the woman inside the tent, his people and her people have a treaty from way back, and so he says, will you hide me? And she says, absolutely. Come on in. And she puts a, a blanket over him. He's thirsty and he asks for water and she goes, well, I'll do you one better. And she opens a skin of milk. She is giving him her best. It is a sign of generosity towards a a, a friend, if you will. What happens next should be obvious. Think about it. What would you do if you were tired, you're exhausted, you've been running for your life, you've found safety, someone to protect you, you've asked for water, but they've given you a glass of warm milk. You've laid down, probably in a bed to rest. They pull a blanket up over you and it's dark. He falls asleep. Verse 21, J.L., Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. Bet you didn't see that coming, did you? This is as shocking to us as it must have been to Sisera. I I think the last thing, I think the last thing to enter this man's mind, other than the tent peg, was the fact that he had been conquered by this woman, right? But J.L. knows this man. She knows his reputation. She knows that he's been raping and pillaging these people for the last two decades, and so when he falls asleep, she nails him, literally, after reading that she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, the text actually adds the phrase, and he died. <laughs> Maybe the most unnecessary words in the entire Bible, and he died. You think? In the song of Deborah in the next chapter, Deborah reflects on J.L. being the hero of the story, taking down the, this evil, evil leader, Sisera, and she sings a song, oh Sisera is dead, she nailed him in the head. No, it doesn't go like that. <laughs> but, but in verses 24 through 27, she does sing a song. She says, most blessed of women be Jael, most blessed of t- tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. And then she's really getting into this song, and she starts giving us the details. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. Anybody unclear about what happened to Sisera here? He has bought the farm, bit the dust, kicked the bucket, cashed in his chips. He's worm food. He's taking a dirt nap. He's pushing up daisies. Elvis has left the building. It is all the same. He is dead. And Deborah was right. Her prophecy that the honor would go to a woman and not Barack came true. It's just not the woman who most of us anticipated would receive the honor when she made her prophecy. Barak would go on to lead the nation of Israel's army against what was left of King Jabin's forces. They would defeat them, they would overthrow Jabin, and the Israelites would live in freedom and prosperity under the incredible leadership of Deborah for the rest of her life. Over the course of this series, we're looking at incredible stories, incredible true stories. We're looking at the lives of individuals who have done great things, and we're asking, is there just one thing from their life that we can pull out? Is there just one element of their character, of what they did that we could apply to our own lives? Is there one thing from their life that we could grow in to become more and more the individuals who God has created and called us to be? Over the course of this series, we're praying a simple prayer together. It goes, Lord, expand my vision, ignite my passion, and cultivate something in me. As we've looked at Deborah's story, I think there are a lot of different aspects of her leadership that we could pull out, but the one that I want us to think about as we consider her story this afternoon is simply the huge amount of influence that she had. I think that her life and this story illustrates influence in an incredibly powerful way, and I think that it is influence that God may want to grow in your life this year as well. Influence. Your influence may be the thing that God wants to develop, to bless the people around you. As we look at Deborah's story, the first aspect of her influence that that jumps out at me that I think we need to consider is simply the fact that at some point in her life, Deborah embraced the fact that she had influence. In some ways, this probably happens before we even get to read her story in chapter 4. By the time we pick up her story, she's leading Israel. She's already leading. She's already serving as a judge. She's already prophesying. We don't know when, but at some point in her life, she realized people care about my opinion. At some point in her life, she recognized people are bringing their disputes for me and asking me to decide the case for them. She started to recognize at some point in her life that she had influence, and, and and at some point, people not only wanted her to settle their cases, but they asked her to lead in other ways. And so at some point, she embraced her leadership and God caused it to grow. The reason that's important is because each and every one of you have influence too. Every single one of you have influence in the lives of some people around you. You have a unique perspective. You have an opinion. You have life experiences that have shaped you and given you experiential wisdom that the people around you in your life would benefit from if you will leverage that in your conversations with them. What you think and what you believe and what you see matters because you have influence. Never make the mistake of thinking that it's only the big, bold, Charismatic people with a giant bankroll behind them that have influence. One of the greatest influential leaders of the 20th century was a a five foot tall woman who lived her life in poverty serving as a nun. Mother Teresa was not who comes to mind when we picture highly influential people, and yet she founded an organization called the Missionaries of Charity, which grew like crazy at a time when most Catholic charities were in decline. And because of her leadership and because of her influence, her organization expanded and made a difference in 25 different countries across five continents. It was not her giant personality or some huge bank account that gave her influence. She simply saw a need around her and wanted to do something about it. And so she rolled up her shirt sleeves, and she got to work, and she invited people to come alongside her and do the work too. She recognized she had influence, and she leaned into that. And you are invited to do the same thing too, because I'm telling you, whether you recognize it or not, you have been given influence And on one hand, you can ignore that. On one hand, you can let that just go over your head this morning and you forget about it and you go back to your life and you keep your head down and you focus on your own stuff and you just stay in your lane. But on the other hand, I think that God may want to cultivate that influence in you. He may want to leverage that for the benefit of other people around you. But first of all, you have to accept and you have to embrace the fact that you have been given influence. The second thing that we see in, in regards to Deborah's influence, is that she saw the potential in other people. Deborah was not a one person show. She recognized that she had a role to play and she played that part, but she also recognized that she was not supposed to play every part, the every role. She saw the potential in other people, namely Barack and JL. And not only did she see the potential in them from a distance, she called them in and she spoke that potential over them, especially with Barak. She encouraged him to play his role. And when he needed her to go with him because he didn't see it in himself yet, she agreed and she said, okay, I'll go with you. This is such a huge piece of having influence in other people's lives. Simply taking the opportunity, simply pausing long enough to look at them and to see the potential in them. But you have the ability to see things in people who are close to you that they may not be able to see in themselves. So often in all of our lives, we are blind to things. We do not see in the mirror what other people from an outsider's perspective are able to see in us. And so many times in our lives, we need someone else to see our potential in us and to speak that into our lives, to speak that over us in a way that encourages us and causes us to have the the courage to move forward into that. You can be that for someone. That's the type of influence that I think God is inviting you to have this year and beyond. This hits home so close for me because I would not be where I am if it were not for people who did this for me. I told you that initially it was my childhood pastor who said, hey, I think that there may be something in you that that is called to full-time ministry when you grow up. But I kind of put that on the shelf when I went to college and I got a different degree and I went and I got a license to do a whole other field of work and I did that for a year And I'll be honest, it was a great field. A lot of people love it. It's such an important field, but it just was not for me. It was not what God had called me to do. But I thought I was stuck. I had my degree in this field. I had a license in this field. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, but I felt like this is what I've got to do. It's my only option. But then God brought another leader into my life who saw the potential in me for church work. And he offered me a position at the church that he led, and I, without even knowing what I was going to do, quit my job and said, okay. I was scared. I was nervous. I had no experience in the career that I would, had just launched myself into. I was completely unqualified, and that made me even more hesitant. But my, this, this leader, my boss, saw the potential in me. And he didn't just see it in me, he spoke that over me. He told me repeatedly, John, you were made to do this. I can see it in you. You may not see it yet, but I'm telling you, you just gotta keep putting yourself in a position to be used by God. And then when I tried and I failed, he was there to pick me back up and to say, "Uh uh-uh, don't you dare quit because this is what you have been made to do. And I'm telling you what, I will forever be indebted to that leader. Because I, I don't know where I would be or what I would be doing today, but I know with confidence it would not be here and it would not be this if he didn't speak into my life in the way that he did. And I'll tell you what was interesting about it. It took him speaking into my life long enough for me to actually believe that he really did like see that in me. At first when he said it, I thought he was just being nice. I thought he was just being encouraging. But he spoke that into my life enough times that at some point I finally accepted he really believes this is true of me. And only then did I start to see it in myself. And only then did I start to step into what God had wired me up to do. I'm telling you, that is what you can do for someone around you. We all have people in our lives who God has placed us in relationship with and who we have relational trust with enough to speak into their life in a powerful way. And so for you, who will that be? Think of just one person. Maybe it's just one person who you're going to be intentional to speak into, that you're gonna call the potential out of, that you're gonna just breathe life into them. You're gonna tell them what you see in them. Who will it be for you? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it is a coworker. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. If you have children at home, If you are raising kids, I believe deeply that this is part of what we have been called to do as parents. As we raise them up and as we release them out into the world, one of the things that I think we have the opportunity to do is to speak life into them, to call out of them what they don't see in themselves, but we see in them because we're older than them. We're we're separated from them. We have life experiences. And so we can look into the lives of our kids and see what they can't yet see. And we have the privilege and the honor to breathe that into them in a powerful way and then to watch as that gets released and as God takes them off on their own and as they flourish knowing who they've been created to be let me finish with just one last thought throughout Deborah's story we kept seeing this phrase into the hands of right I highlighted it four or five times but it's in there even more as I was reading Deborah's story, I kept coming across this, and after you read the phrase four or five times in like the matter of like two chapters, you go, there's something to this, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. You ever have that moment you're like, like I know there's something else to this, but I can't figure out what it is. But there was something in me that kept eating at me going, I know that phrase from somewhere. And then finally, I woke up one day and I thought of it first thing in the morning, which is kind of how God tends to do stuff in my life that way. And I immediately remembered, this is not only a key phrase in Deborah's story, this was a key phrase in Jesus' story as well. Luke tells us in his gospel that as Jesus hung on the cross, laying down his life for us to bridge the gap between us and God the Father so that we could be reconciled to him, We read in Luke 22 that it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. I cannot help but draw the parallels between the fact that in the book of Judges, an evil leader was defeated when a a tent peg was driven into his temple. And I cannot help but see the parallel to the New Testament when Jesus would allow a similar peg to be driven into his hands and feet to defeat all of evil once and for all. In the book of of Judges, an evil leader, leader, Sisera, was placed in the hands of Jael And in the book of Luke, Jesus places his spirit into the hands of God the Father. And in doing so, he invites all of us to follow his example. And this is what Jesus taught. Jesus gave us a model, an example to follow, to do as he did. And I think even with his last breath, he was giving us an example to follow as he entrusted his life and his death and his eternity into the hands of God the Father. And I believe that we are invited to do the same thing today, to place our life and our eternity into the hands of God as well. And when we do that, we are filled with his spirit, and I think that this is when our influence really takes hold, really gets good. Because when, when we're filled with His Spirit, we are given eyes to see people around us in ways that we did not see them before. We are given eyes to see people around us in ways that they do not see themselves. And I think that this is part of how God expands His kingdom one person at a time. He takes one of us who has placed our life into His hands. And he gives us eyes to see new. We are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is is here. And we're given new eyes to see people around us. And then when we leverage our influence and we speak life into their lives, God uses that in ways that we never could on our own. And it's a beautiful process that we just get to play a small part in as we leverage our influence for their benefit and for his glory. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this crazy story of Deborah and the Israelites in Judges 3, 4, and 5. Lord, thanks for the example of Deborah and how she leveraged her influence. And God, if this is the thing that you want to cultivate in us, would you help us to lean into that? Would you help us to embrace the fact that you have given us influence? And God, as we place our life into your hands, would you give us eyes to see people around us in a special way? Would you give us eyes to see people as you see them, and then give us the words to speak into their life. Let our influence be good and beneficial for the people around us, and let it be glorifying to you. It's in Jesus's name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said amen. Have a great Sunday, everybody. We'll see you next week.
1: Change even when I hold back, and even when I'm hiding, you cover me with grace. Even in my failure, and even in my striving, you cross the distances to find.
2: surrounding me let it break at your name still we'll call the to still the rage in me to still everywhere at your name Jesus Jesus you make the darkness tremble Jesus Jesus, you silence fear. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, oh, call these bones to live, call these lungs to sing once again. Praise Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. You silence fear, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. Come on, let's sing that again. Oh Jesus. and you make the darkness tremble Jesus Jesus you silence my fear Oh Jesus Jesus you make the darkness tremble Jesus Jesus that truth that God no matter the situation or our circumstances God that at the mention of your name you come rushing in God you are so faithful to that promise and we thank you for that Lord and we rejoice in that this morning and we just pray all these things in your name, amen